Well, good morning. Greetings to each of you in the Master's name this morning. I'm just recovering from a cold and still have a little bit of a scratch in my throat, so I may need to go to my water glass a little more than normal today, so I'm sorry about that. But uh, I'm thankful that it's as good as it is this morning. For a message this morning, we're looking again at the book of Romans and planning this morning to look at Romans 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 20. So a pretty good size passage this morning. I'm trying to move a little bit faster here, so maybe I can slow down a little bit later when I get to some other parts. Um, but as I was studying these, this passage, I was just amazed at how many little thoughts are interjected into these verses that you could take and, and pull scriptures from other areas and you could build a sermon around one verse and many of the verses we're going to be looking at this morning. So in some ways, this could be a little bit more of an overview um, for the song leader following, we usually call for a song after the message, but I've asked the for the special singing after the message, so um, the song leader won't need to be prepared for a song following the message. <clears throat> so where were we? Working through chapter 2 here. Um, part of the framework of thought that's preceding the verses we're going to look at is the judgment of God. And that's coming. The judgment of God is coming because on the basis of what we have done. So there's going to be judgment that's going to be based on the way we have lived. One of the questions that comes to me pretty often is on the billboard line is what is going to happen after I die? And my typical response is, after we die, we're going to stand before God and give account for the way we have, for how we have lived. And that idea is here in verse 2 preceding these verses. But also the thing that, that Paul is bringing in here is that judgment is guided by law. And law gives bounds to, to morals. It's what sets the criteria about what is good or bad. And so judgment then is based on law because the judgment is made on the basis of the bounds that are set on the moral right and wrong. And so Paul is bringing in, in this idea of judgment, he's bringing in the idea of law. So you have two manifestations of law in verse 14 where it says, for when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. And so you have the law of Moses there. Um, these having not the law, that law is the law of Moses, are a law unto themselves. And that second law is a law generated by conscience that it talks about in that passage as well. So the word in focus this morning is law. There are several different kinds of law mentioned in the scriptures. There may be more. I'd be happy for you to tell me if, there, if you can think of any more than this. But there's the law of human government. And that's what 
Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6 when he admonishes the believers there for taking legal action against one another. He says you're going to law with one another before unbelievers. So he, they, were, they were going to the human law to resolve conflict. Then there's the law of conscience, the imprinted, um, the imprint of the image of God in the conscience of all men. That's talked about earlier here in chapter 2. There's the law of sin. It's the law spoken of in Ezekiel 20 where it says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And that's the law that was initiated by God with Adam when God said, in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. Sin leads to death. It's the law of sin. It comes up again. This, will, this law will come up in chapter 7 and 8 of Romans. It's slightly different from the law of Moses, also called the law of the Lord. It's the written law given to Moses by God on Mount Sinai. It's what Jesus was referring to when he talks about the law and the prophets. He was talking about the law given to Moses. Hebrews 7.19 says, the law, for the law, speaking of this law, for the law made nothing perfect. And that word perfect there means, gives the idea of complete or fulfilled. For the law made nothing perfect. And Galatians 3.21 tells us why it couldn't make anything perfect. And that is because it couldn't give life. So it was given by God, but it was not, it could not make perfect what God's plan. God had something more in store than that written law of Moses. So then we have the law of God, which is primarily in the New Testament. And this is a righteousness that includes both spirit and action. And it's called in the New Testament, it's called the law of God, the law of Christ, the law of the spirit of life, and the perfect law of liberty. This law is the true standard of good and righteousness. By varying degrees, the other laws mentioned have a flavor or a touch, a connection with this law. So every form of law has some connection with the law of God, whether it's because of the human conscience, whether it's because of the fact that it's the other law is part of what God is presenting to humanity, part of his revelation of himself, or simply because, like I said, the law of conscience, which also somewhat directs the law, the human laws and laws of human interaction. But the law of God in the sense of the law of Christ and this, the law of the spirit of life is God's perfect standard of righteousness and his expectation for humanity. He created us to live that righteousness the law of the spirit of life. He created us and Jesus is the representation of that. The only way that that law can be manifest is through life and being. The only way for this righteousness to be, to be seen is for it to be seen in a life of a, of a person. So what is the significance of this? Well, the first thing is that as we're going through, as you're reading through the Bible, 
and especially the New Testament, law comes up quite a bit. And as you see the word law, you need to, to understand what the passage is saying. You need to know which law it's talking about and what that law represents. So that can help you to understand what's being said in verses like the one I read here in verse 14 where it says, we're having not the law or a law to themselves. So it's using the same word, but it's meaning slightly different things. The second thing is that we were created to live this standard of, of righteousness that God, that God, that is God's standard of righteousness, is God's standard of truth. And in verse 16, when it says that the world will be judged by Jesus Christ, it's saying that we will be held, humanity will be held to the standard of Jesus. So Dana and I were talking about this week, the reason why we don't, the reason why it's not wise for us to compare ourselves among ourselves is because we can justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to other people. But when we look at the standard of Jesus, we would never be able to justify ourselves. We will always stand in need when we compare ourselves to the standard of Christ. And Christ, through his life, his being, through his time here on earth, he showed us the righteousness of the law. And so he, he held up the standard of what it means, what God expects and what God sees that humanity should be. So there's no hope without a Savior. If that's the standard, because none of us are like Christ, but Paul doesn't stop here when he says the world's going to be judged by Jesus Christ. He has farther that he wants to take us. And he wants to talk about later in this, later in this book, in this letter, he wants to talk about the law of the spirit of life and us fulfilling that righteousness. So let's start reading in chapter 2, verse 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide to the blind, a light to them that are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Thou therefore which teachest another. Thank you, David. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself. Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written, For circumcision verily profiteth if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision dost transgress the law? For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is, through the heart, is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision, much every way, chiefly because that unto them 
were committed, the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For... God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as some, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. I'm going to stop reading there and we'll finish the last 10 verses here in a little while. But looking at verse 17, we have this, this term Jew there. And the, the word Jew means of Judah. And initially, it was connected with the people from the nation of Judah. It starts showing up uh, during the time of the kingdom of Judah as separate from the ten tribes of Israel. It starts showing up in the Old Testament. The first place is the book of Esther in, in the biblical, but in chronological order, the first place would be, I think, Jeremiah, where the term Jew shows up. But it has to do with the people who, the, the nation of Judah, the people who are part of the nation of Judah, and then those people who were carried away to Babylon out of the tribe of Judah. The ten tribes had already been carried away by Assyria and spread out through different areas, different parts of the Assyrian Empire. Um, but this term Jew referred to Judah. But eventually it came to, to be more broadly used and... It referred to the connection with Jerusalem and the people who worship the one true God. And so the, the people who would have been connected with the worship at Jerusalem, people who have been connected with the temple and that form of worship, and also the form of the worship established by the old covenant law or the, the law of Moses. So Paul is addressing, specifically addressing and saying, thou art called a Jew. So he's talking to the people who identify with that old covenant Mosaic law. You have this heritage. You, you're, you're called a Jew. You have this heritage and this reputation of belief. You rest in the law. Your confidence and security is in the law of Moses. And you make your boast of God. You claim to be a representative of him. And so this, this idea that by claiming the name Jew, I'm also claiming to be someone who is a representative of God. Verse 18, through the law, you have understanding of what God expects and considers to be good. Verses 19 and 20, you're confident that your knowledge is complete enough to teach others. Verse 20, you have the form and shape, or you have the truly expressed facts, the, the picture, um, the picture of 
what God wants. Not just the the individually collected things, but rather you have you have this body of ideas put together from the law in a way that you have a, a shape, a form of what God wants. Having all this, he's saying to, to the person who calls himself a Jew, having all this in verses 21 and 22, do you do the things that you tell others not to do? So we know all these things. As a Jew, you know all these things. You have this framework of truth. You believe in God. But do you do the things that you tell other people not to do? Because, in verse 23, if we say that we honor the law, but we break it, we dishonor God. So the law came from God, and we, we point to that and say this is where our understanding comes from of who God is and what He wants. But when we break that, then we dishonor the one who gave it. And in verse 24, verses 23 and 24, this is what happened with the people of Israel. Let me read verse 24. Actually, I'll read verse 23 too. Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law dishonorest thou God. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. And so he doesn't have a quotation here of what is written. But let me go back. Well, let me first of all say, these two verses summarize the third form of God's manifestation to humanity, his manifestation of himself to humanity, which was by the law through the Jewish people. And when he... His goal in giving the law and giving it to the Jewish people and choosing them and drawing them out was so that his name could be glorified in the earth. And we find that in Deuteronomy 28. And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, and to observe and to do all his commandments which I commanded thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. The Lord shall establish thee and holy people unto himself, as he hath sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandment of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways, and all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of thee. And so there's going to be a glorification of God. If these people, if these Jews, or these, in that case, the people of Israel, would have followed the commandments of God and set themselves to follow the commandments of God and fulfilled all of that, that they would have brought glory to God throughout all the world because of what the law had initiated into their lives. But, Deuteronomy 15 says, But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commands and his statutes which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall be upon thee and overtake thee. And there was this whole list of curses that were going to come upon them if they didn't follow God. And these curses included being carried away into captivity and scattered throughout the world. And then Isaiah says in Isaiah 52, 5, and this is possibly what Paul is referring to. There's one other passage that he might be referring to in reference to this. But in 52, Isaiah 52, 5, it says, Now therefore... What have I here, saith the Lord, or what's, what's before me? What do I have here? 
that my people is taken away for naught, or they've had to be taken away for nothing. Not meaning that because they hadn't done anything, but because they chased after useless things. They that rule over them make them to howl, saith the Lord, and my name continually every day is blasphemed. And so because the children of Israel did not fulfill and did not keep those promises of God and did not follow His commandments, God says here in Isaiah, every day my name is blasphemed. And so Paul is pointing to the people who knew this covenant. And he said, you have not followed this covenant. And because of that, God's name has been blasphemed. Now we have to go back and think about what Paul's doing. Paul's bringing us to the place where he's saying that everybody is found under sin. And so he's helping the Jewish people to recognize that you also are under sin. You have this boast of belief in God. You have these things. But your disobedience puts you under sin. And then Paul begins to drive home his point. And he moves to something, the sign of circumcision. Now, circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. So it predates the law of Moses. But it was brought into the law as part of the promise to Abraham that God would give his children the land of Canaan. But it was connected to the larger promise as well to Abraham that this was a sign signified, signifying the chosen people of God. So this thing of circumcision had begun with Abraham and Abraham's promise and commitment um, and covenant with God. This, the sign of circumcision was something that began with Abraham and was part of the promise to Abraham and his descendants that this sign was to be a symbol of the fact that they were his people. That they were his chosen people. <clears throat> and so Paul picks up on this symbol that began with their very roots of their heritage and Abraham and his chosen his choosing out, separating out, and then also choosing Israel as a result of that. It also was a sign of those who were pleasing to God. Like Abraham received this sign of circumcision as a result of his faith because he pleased God. Because the, the faith that he had in God and the things that, that that faith did were pleasing to God. And so God gave him this connection. And so this thing of circumcision also has to do with the idea that the people who were circumcised were part of the people of God, but they were pleasing to God. So what does it mean that it's a sign? Well, I want to make that a little bit practical because I think it's important to the later discussion. Let's think a little bit about a stop sign. Well, you don't stop an intersection because of the stop sign. You stop at an intersection because of Newton's laws of motion. You stop because of the vehicle that's going the other way. And, or the potential of a vehicle going the other way. The stop sign is something that alerts you 
to that law of motion. And what is the significance of that law of motion? Well, the significance is that if you don't stop and there is a vehicle coming the other way, that that law of motion is going to be destructive to what you own and possibly what you love. So the stop sign only profits if you obey the law that says you're to stop. Because if the stop sign's there and you don't stop and there's somebody coming the other way, the sign is of no profit because you didn't obey the law. But if someone stops at the end of their lane where there is no stop sign, will they not show that they understand the laws of motion better than you who had the sign and ignored it? So Paul is saying that the sign of circumcision was an indication of something that was deeper. This love for God, this being the chosen people of God, this being part of the law of God. But he goes on to say that the sign of circumcision only profits you if you actually keep the law. But if you break the law, then your circumcision is the same as if it were uncircumcision. We're now into verses 25 through 27. But if a person who does not have the sign, if they don't have circumcision, but they do the right thing in the right way, then it demonstrates that they have the sign internally. Then they are circumcised within because they are doing the right thing in the right way. And so they are exemplifying the sign. None of that makes none of that made the sign wrong. It was not a reason to reject the sign. It was simply it's simply an argument that he concludes in verses 28 and 29. So who is a Jew? Who are the people of God? It's not determined by having the signs in place, but having the righteousness of the law within and fulfilling that law within, in the Spirit. It's not memorizing all of the Torah. It's not being physically circumcised but it's knowing what God wants and carrying it out in the right spirit. That's who a Jew is. So then, is the law and the sign of circumcision useless? Chapter 3, what advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Paul says, much in every way. Because unto them were committed the oracles of God. These were the words of God. This was significant. It was significant that God had spoken and had given His word to the Jewish people. But some of them did not believe. For what if some did not believe? Verse 3, Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? And now here he's making a very subtle shift. And as I was studying this, it was hard for me to articulate how to make this shift. Lack of belief 
does not make the truth less true. If there is, if there is truth available, someone not believing that truth does not diminish the reality of the truth. But he's not just making an argument about truth. He's also bringing in faith. The effectiveness of God's message rests in faith. Even in the Old Testament, the effectiveness of the message of God rested in faith, not in the letter. And so what Paul's saying is that the fact that the law didn't produce what God, the end result that God was aiming for, the righteousness that God wanted, and the fact that some didn't believe did not nullify the fact that through faith it had an important role to play. In fact, the writer in Hebrews tells us that the reason why the law was not effective was because it was not mixed with faith in them that heard. And so Paul's not saying here that the law is useless. He's saying that it did not bring about the completion that God wanted. And it does not make the faith of God, it does not make, when he said in chapter 1, from faith to faith, he wasn't, he was, he's saying here, that that first faith, that old covenant faith, did have an effect. And so, don't throw out the law of Moses in the sense of the fact that it has value and it had value in God's plan. I hope that's not too confusing. But verse 4, did it make the faith of God without effect? God forbid, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Okay, did it make the faith of God without effect? God forbid, let God be true, but every man a liar. So, what is he saying there? He's saying that there is no human reason or capability that supersedes what God has said. And so when we look at the Word of God and when we look at the Old Covenant law, and this is part of the problem that the Pharisees had in not finding Jesus, when they looked at the law, they didn't see what God was saying in some cases. And so all of their human reason and all their human effort and all the ideas that they came up with on the, to formulate what the, what the Messiah was going to be like, they might have been right in a few ways, but they were off in so many ways that when Jesus came, they missed him. But our focus needs to be, and our understanding and our faith needs to be, that God is true. And he is true against all testimony of people and their ideas in the sense of if they come up with something that's different than what he has to say. Because our justification, that thou might be justified, because our justification does not come on the basis of what men think or what men produce. It comes on the basis of what God says and what he wants for us.
Our justification comes through Him. Let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Because we have found God and we have found what He thinks and we have followed that. And what man has said, we have left off to the side because our faith is in God, it's not in man. But what if, verses 5 through 8, what if my doing wrong proves God right? Question 1, if I do that, in verse 5, is God wrong to punish me? If my doing wrong proves God right and brings Him glory, then is it right for Him to punish me? I mean, sorry, is it wrong for him to punish me? The answer is no in verse 6. Because without a standard of right and wrong, there could be no judgment of evil. And so God has a standard of right and wrong, and he must hold everyone accountable to that standard of right and wrong. Otherwise, there could be no judgment. And then question 2 in verse 7. If truth is promoted through my lie, why am I judged a sinner? The answer to that is in verse 8. We cannot bring about good by doing evil. Doing evil always brings about evil. It is only through the redemption of God that good can come from evil. It's only because of God. And we do not have the freedom or the right to make that decision and say, I will do evil here so that good can come here. God is the one who restores. He tells us to do good and then makes beauty of ashes. He is the one that does that. It is our responsibility to do good. And the people who say that, the people who say, let us do evil that good may come, are justly condemned. But verse 9, are we better than they? No, in no wise. For in these three chapters, in these first three chapters of Romans, Paul has proved both Jews and Gentiles, all people under sin. All are under sin. For there is none righteous, no, not one. And what does that look like? Let's start reading at verse 11. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all going out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Have you ever been in any of those places? Maybe you say there's some of those that I haven't been. But if you actually look at those and look carefully, you'll find places where you have been in those verses. Can you see humanity in those verses? Yes, very much we can see humanity in those verses. But it begins and ends. Those verses begin and end with a lack of love and reverence for God. And that's the first thing that the law expressed. 
was love and reverence for God. Verse 11, there's none that seeketh after God. In verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And we've all been there. We've all been at the place where we were seeking our own. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And then verse 19 and 20. Now we know that what, so, what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That every mouth may be stopped. What does that mean? It means that every self-justification will be stopped. We will have, on the basis of what God has said, what God has given us in the law, we will have no, we will have nothing to say on the day of judgment. Every mouth will be stopped because of what the law said. And all the world, because of what the law said, is will become guilt, will be guilty before God, will stand accused. And I think there's an important lesson for here for us here as parents. The law by the law is the knowledge of sin. We want our children not just to be obedient, but we want them to come to God in repentance and to find Him. We need to hold our children to the law. Or in other words, we need to put the law in front of our children and let them know what the law says. The law of God says that we should live like this. And if they come to recognize and are honest with themselves about what the law of God says, they'll recognize that they need a Savior. And no amount of trying to perform the law will make them right, will justify them. That's what it means to be justified. It means to be made right, to put in a right place. And no amount of attempting to perform the law will make us right with God. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. No one who is the seed of Adam, who are, who are born to human flesh, will be made right by performing the law. Because by the law is the knowledge of sin. And sin leads to death. And the knowledge of sin exposes our death, our destination of death. It does not justify us. It simply exposes us to our destination. The law shows us that we need life. And life is such a critical part of this book, of this letter to the Romans. And I think, at least for me, it's just really coming alive to me as I've gone through this study and, and over the last several months and years, it's just this idea of life, this thread of life that's in the book of Romans. It's so critical to the concepts that are here. So I want to remind you of what Paul said before he began this point of leading us on the path that convicted all under sin. In Romans 1, 17, right before he started into that, he said, for therein, speaking of the gospel of Christ, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, 
The just shall what? The just shall live by faith. Life by faith. So he's taken us through all of this and he's shown us our unrighteousness. And then I want to compare verses chapter 3, verse 21 and 22 with that verse there in Romans 1.17. For therein is the right, this is 1.17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as, is, as, is, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And then Romans 3.21. But now, just following all this, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest. So in Romans 1.17, he said, the righteousness of God revealed. Here he says, the righteousness of God is manifest. Almost exactly the same thing. Manifest and revealed are the same things, made known. Here he's adding without the law in that equation. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Again, an, an expression of what the law did, that early faith, from faith to faith. That beginning law of Moses that was to be built around faith brought about or showed, witnessed the righteousness of God. Even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe for there is no difference. So there is hope of life. We began, we're all going to be judged by the standard of Jesus Christ in verse 16. And, and by that standard, we all have need. And here in 22, he's giving us hope again. Hope of life. And Paul begins now, that from this point on, he begins to show how the gospel is the answer to life and righteousness. Righteousness. 